Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. Father, we are thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy, uh, for this opportunity to gather together, uh, to enjoy the snacks that we've enjoyed this evening. Also, this time of prayer and fellowship and study in your Word. Father, we just pray that uh, tonight's uh, time of study together will be honoring to you and edifying to us. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're picking up in our section on humility. We are studying the subject of soteriology. Soteriology, that is the study of salvation. It comes from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means a study of or a word about. And so, so the study of soteriology is the study of salvation. Uh, now, we spent four hours just covering the introduction that we went in and we looked at the um, three members. Uh, we're looking at the three members of the Godhead who are all involved in our salvation. We spent a night looking at the um, uh, doctrine of the Trinity and the attributes of God. We spent a night talking about the role of God the Father who planned our salvation from eternity past, who commissioned God the Son to come into the world and to take upon himself humanity, and he sent the Son. Tonight we are continuing our study of looking at God the Son and His role, because all three members of the Godhead are, enrolled, are involved in our salvation. Uh, I just finished my notes on the uh, section on the Holy Spirit here a few weeks ago, and so that'll be ready when we get to that section. Uh, and at that time we will look at the role of God the Holy Spirit in salvation. But we're looking at, all, at the role of all three members of the Godhead. Uh, and so uh, tonight, well, the last couple times we met, last time we met, we spent the whole evening talking about the suffering of Jesus. We uh, spent some time looking at Isaiah 53 and the subject of the suffering servant. Prior to that, we looked at the doctrine of the incarnation. We looked at, uh, at uh, the subject of the hypostatic union. And uh, so we went through that, and so we're, we're trekking along now. I think that this is going to be Lesson 16. Uh, somebody asked me how long we'll be going in this particular study, when we'll finish, and I projected that we'll probably finish sometime late next year. Uh, but anything worth doing, I think, is worth doing right, and I think we're studying the Word of God, and the Word of God demands respect. And I think it's one of those things that if we're really going to take the time to get into it, to study it, I think it, I think it demands this, uh, this level of attention. All right, so tonight we're going to pick up, and we're looking at the subject of Jesus' humility. Jesus' humility. Um, we'll be going off the notes here, and I'll be chasing down lots of Scripture references and chasing a few rabbit trails, I suspect, as well. Now, it is only natural that the subject of Jesus' humility be discussed after examining his position as the suffering servant. I have a quote here from W.H. Griffith Thomas. He says, In the Old Testament, our Lord is called the servant of Jehovah, and in the New Testament, he is described as having taken the form of a servant. In order to do the will of God and redeem mankind, it was necessary for him to humble himself and become a servant, so that along the pathway of service he might come to that cross, which was at once the, uh, the uh, exemplification of devoted duty, redeeming grace, and divine love. End quote. And the subject of Jesus as a servant uh, we find not only in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 most notably, we spent some time there, but Jesus presents himself as a servant. Uh, and of course, one can think about uh, John chapter 13, where uh, Jesus is in the upper room. And remember in the upper room that Jesus, uh, it is the night before his betrayal, before his crucifixion. 
In John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those chapters all occur in one discourse. And it all occurs literally hours before the cross. It's the night before his crucifixion. And when you're reading John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you must realize that Jesus knows that the cross is literally hours away, that he's going to go into the garden, he's going to pray. We know that he is going to be betrayed by a friend, Judas, whom he calls friend. It's very striking that the very last words that Jesus says to Judas when he comes to him, he says, have you come to betray me, friend? And he calls him friend. And I think it was the last display of grace that Jesus gave to this man uh, who was about to betray him. And yet Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that he's going to be lied to and lied about. He knows that he will, be, that he will go through a series of illegal trials, the accumulation of which will amount to the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. He will be mocked. He will be beaten. He will be ridiculed. There will be a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He will be whipped with a scourge. Uh, and, uh, and literally it will tear his flesh off his back and off his body, and then he will be made to carry his instrument of death to Golgotha, to the hill of the skull, the place where he will be crucified. And he's literally hours away, and you have to keep that in mind when you're reading through John 13, and most notably, as because in this section, and here in John 13:3, if you have your Bibles, you can go with me or follow on the screen, It says in verse 3 that Jesus, knowing that the Father had had given all things into his hand, into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, that very nicely captures John 1 and Acts 1, because in John 1, we have in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14 tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, we have the ascension of Christ, where he goes back to the Father. And so John talks about how he came forth from God. And remember that that the Father sent the Son. Remember that from eternity past, God planned our salvation, and that he was sent by the Father. And we looked at verses where, where it's very clear that says that Jesus several times says that the Father sent me. And this was from eternity past, that this was all determined. And so he had, he had come forth from God, and he was going back to God. And here in verse 4, uh, notice it says, And he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now what's going on here? Well, Jesus in this section is taking the form of a servant. And so he lays aside his garments, his clothes, and he takes this towel and girds himself about. Now in the ancient world, slavery was very common in the ancient world. And uh, there, there were uh, household slaves that had the lowest and the dirtiest of jobs. And these are the ones that when you came in off the street, they would meet you and they would be seated usually at a chair or maybe on their knees. But they would get down with a bucket of water and they would wash your feet because people didn't wear socks and shoes. They wore sandals. And, of course, when you're walking through the dusty streets and you're stepping in all sorts of stuff, you come home, your feet are dirty. And th- the servant who had the lowest job among all the servants uh, was the one who would wash your feet. It was, it was a dirty, nasty job, okay? And this is what Jesus does. Jesus lays aside his garments, takes this towel, girds himself about, and then he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, if 
uh, they had ordered pizza that night, and we were the delivery person, and we showed up, and we came in, and we saw this setting with these uh, men sitting around this table, and here's this man with a towel about, and he's washing their feet. We would have immediately looked at him, and we would have thought, a servant. That's what we would have thought of. We would not have thought of the infinite Son of God. We would not have thought of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's exactly what he is. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in this situation, he becomes the servant of servants when he lays aside his his garments and takes this towel upon himself and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And I guarantee that these were the cleanest feet in all of Jerusalem that day because this is the Son of God. And if he's going to do something, he's going to do it right. And so he's going through and he's washing their feet. And it says in verse 5, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, he has a little bit of a conflict here with Peter. Uh, verse 6, John 13, 6. It says, So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, Peter, I love Peter. Uh, he, he gets himself in trouble sometimes, and this is one of those moments where he, you know, he, he starts to talk before asking and really thinking about what's going on. Rather than just trusting the Lord and letting the Lord do what the Lord's going to do, you know, he says... Um, Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, uh, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet, because here Peter is having a hard time seeing Jesus in this role. He really is. Uh, and he sees Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, he calls, him the, he calls him the Messiah. Remember back in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter gives that wonderful response, and he says, you are, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he calls him the Christ, when he calls him Christos, and Christos is not his last name, it's a title. Uh, he is literally the Christ, he is the Messiah, and Christos is the Greek equivalent of Hamashiach, the Messiah. He is the anointed one, he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. And so Peter recognizes him, and he sees him in this very high and lofty position. And that's correct, by the way. Peter was commended. In fact, Jesus even tells him, he says, look, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he commends Peter for that. But here Peter uh, resists him. And he says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And of course, Peter doesn't want to hear that, so then he goes, he goes to the other extreme. He said, he, he said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So in other words, if, if, if Meros here, if having fellowship with you means that, that you have to wash me, well then, well, let's not just stop at the feet, let's, let's do the whole body. So he goes from one extreme to the other. And I like Peter, because I can kind of <laughs> go that way too, I get it, okay? I think we can all be a little Peter, uh, uh, Peter at times. So verse 10, he says, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Notice he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He doesn't abandon his high position. That is still recognized. He is still teacher and Lord. But then he says, if I then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And so in this way, he demonstrates his humility. And by the way, this, there, there are two kinds of humility that are mentioned in the scripture, and you find this in life too. One is 
a, one is what's called an enforced humility. The other one is true humility. Forced humility is where somebody grabs you and forces you to do something. Listen, nobody grabbed Jesus by the neck and forced him to wash the disciples' feet. This, this, this was something that he was not forced to do. This was a true humility because it was born out of his own desire to do this thing. In other words, he humbled himself. And that's part of the picture here when we talk about his humility. By the way, don't miss verse 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now here, Jesus is talking about serving others. Now, a lot of times we, in our society, and I think world at large, I think we tend to think of happiness uh, as the acquisition of things, of money and, and toys and that sort of stuff, and, you know, constant vacations. We tend to think about what we can accumulate. But here, Jesus gives the real key for happiness. He says, if you know these things, that is, being a servant to others, you are blessed if you do them. In other words, if you really want to know what the blessed life is, serve others. Be a servant. Uh, Be one who gives of yourself uh, for the edification and the well-being of other people. And, of course, you think of even in in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so here is the Son of God, uh, who is one who is willing to be this servant to others. Now, going on in the notes here, Matthew records Jesus' mental attitude of humility in Matthew 11, 29, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, that's the kind of leader you want, isn't it? Somebody who's gentle, somebody who's humble, somebody who's willing to give of themselves for the, for the well-being of others, really, really sacrifice of themselves. And that's Jesus. Now, the word humble translates the Greek adjective to painos, uh, which denotes, and here I'm quoting from Badag, which is the Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon uh, of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. It just simply means lowly, undistinguished, of no account. Jesus' mental attitude of humility was in contrast with that of the world, which regards the virtue of humility in a negative way. Moises Silva, and here I'm quoting from um, uh, a work here. It's the um, New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis. Uh, Moises Silva says, he says, In the Greek world, with its anthropocentric approach, Lowliness is looked on as shameful to be avoided and overcome by act and thought. In the New Testament, with its theocentric perspective, the words are used to describe our relationship with God and its effect on how we treat fellow human beings. Anthropocentric is a compound word, and you see anthropos meaning man. Well, it's man-centered, it's self-centered. Theocentric, from the Greek word theos for God, means that it is God-centered. And so it is intentionally focused upon God. For Jesus, being humble meant that he was more concerned with doing the Father's will than that of the world around him or even his own will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he struggled in his humanity, and he did struggle in his humanity with going to the cross because he knew what he was going to face. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But notice what he said, yet not my will but your will be done. 
And this is really the reversal of what happened in, in, uh, in the Garden of Eden. Because if you go back and you remember in the Garden of Eden, God had very clearly given the command to Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet when they listened to the advice of Satan and they disobeyed the Lord, in effect they said, not thy will, but my will be done. And so Jesus here, by the way, he's in a garden too. <laughs> in this situation, he makes it, he, he says, he asked the Father, he says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And there is no greater act of humility than Jesus being obedient to the point of death on the cross. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. And uh, what you'll notice here is that, again, this, that this is a self-induced uh, humility, a self-induced humility, that he humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice even death on a cross. Warren Wearsby, whom I love very much and appreciate, we, he passed away a few years ago, but if you can get a hold of any of his books, I recommend him very highly. Warren Wearsby states, he says, His was not the death of a martyr, but the death of a Savior. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. And that's correct. Remember, we talked about that, because in John chapter 10, Jesus made it very clear. He said, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. You see, Jesus was not murdered. He was killed, but he was not murdered. And he makes it very clear. He says, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he says, And I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And so when he went to the cross, he could have stopped it anywhere along the way. I mean, he could have just blinked or had a thought. I mean, he's God, right? He could have just simply just had a thought. And literally, everything could have come to a screeching halt. His going through this, these, these trials, these beatings, this, this scourging, this crucifixion, and hanging upon the cross, and even being mocked and ridiculed, during this time, he could have stopped it all. But he didn't. He willingly went and this was his humility to do the Father's will. Homer Kent notes, he says, He was so committed to the Father's plan that he obeyed it even as far as death. Nor was this all, for it was no ordinary death, but the disgraceful death by crucifixion, a death not allowed for Roman citizens and to Jews indicative of the curse of God. And Earl Rodmacher, quote, uh, quoting here, here uh, now, he says, Jesus came to the earth with the identity of a man. Here the word appearance points to the external characteristics of Jesus. He had the bearing actions and manners of a man. And I highlighted this section here. He humbled himself. Jesus willingly took the role of a servant. No one forced him to do it. Obedient, although he never sinned and did not deserve to die, he chose to die so that the sins of the world could be charged to his account. Subsequently, he could credit his righteousness to the account of all who believe in him, end quote. And that's the trade-off. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, remember that throughout the whole, throughout the whole ordeal, there came a point where at noontime, as, as he hung between heaven and earth, that the sky grew dark. And during that time was when God the Father took all of the sin of humanity, past, present, and future, and took that sin and placed it upon Christ, and Christ was made to bear our sin. He was judged in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that he died for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 
And so it was during that time that the sky grew dark and God the Father judged Christ upon the cross as though it were us there paying the penalty for our sin. And that's why the death of Christ is referred to as a penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. He bore the penalty for our sin. He paid the punishment that belonged to us. Substitutionary, because he died in our place. It was as though we were upon the cross, but he, he took our sins upon himself. And he bore that punishment. And during that time, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see? And so remember that as stated before, Jesus was not forced to go to the cross, but willingly went to the cross and bore our sin. John, 17, uh, John 10, 17 uh, and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And then in verse 18, he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Remember when we looked at the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is simultaneously God and man. He's 100% God. He's undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is fully God and fully man. But when he was upon the cross and bearing our sin, that was not God. Uh, that was not his deity. It was his humanity. Because 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that in himself, uh, that he himself bore our sins in his body. That's in his humanity. Now, as God, he could have avoided the cross altogether or even stepped down from the cross if he wanted. Jesus died on a cross to accomplish the Father's will to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness and eternal life and enjoy heaven forever with him. His being humble to the point of death was for our well-being. 1 Peter 3.18 again tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The just, that's Christ. The unjust, that's us. And so he died in our place. And remember, I've, I, we've, uh, we're going to look at it here in the very near future, but I'll bring it up again. When it says that Christ died uh, uh, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the word for there, for the unjust, translates the Greek preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, huper. And that is one of two prepositions that we're going to look at here in the near future. The other one is the Greek preposition anti, which is actually the stronger of the two. But the Greek preposition huper communicates the idea of substitution. Substitution, that Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. Uh, and here, quoting from Warren Wiersbe, he says, no one else has ever come from infinite heights of glory to such a shameful death. If there had been a better way or another way by which the sin of the world uh, could have been taken away, God surely would not have required his beloved son to submit to such a death. This was the only way. There had to be a perfect sacrifice, an atonement of infinite value. And this could be accomplished only by a person who was both God and man who was without sin and yet was truly a man representing the human race. No other could take the place of Christ, no act of devotion, however unselfish, no act of ordinary man, however courageous for sin. 
As we contemplate the mind of Christ, which, which made him willing to die on the cross, we must realize that if Christ had not died, men would still be in their sins with a hopeless eternity and facing just, and facing just as certain a judgment as that which is the lot of the lost angels who know nothing of salvation. Now that's a lot packed into there, and some of the teachers I study under can be a little dense in their writings too, and by dense I mean very compact. Uh, you can spend a lot of time unpacking that. But the idea that Christ uh, was the only qualified Savior to go to the cross and to die in the place of mankind, um, we see this in his suffering, but we see it in his humility. Uh, in fact, we could call it a condescension of love because he came down. God the Son came into the world nearly 2,000 years ago in time and space, in real history, and he walked among men, and he lived an absolutely sinless life. Uh, he committed no sin. He lived an absolutely righteous life, and he went to a cross and he died a death he did not deserve. And for whom did he die? Not for his own sins. He was innocent. He was righteous. He committed no sin. For whom did he die? For me. And he died for you. That's who he died for. And he bore the punishment that rightfully belongs to us so that we would not have to. And if any other way of salvation could have been achieved apart from that substitutionary atoning death, then God would have sought it. But no other option was available. And you have to go back again to eternity past, that in eternity past, God the Father designed this plan. God the Son agreed to it, came into the world, and at a point in time took upon himself humanity. He became the God-man, the theanthropic person. And he lived that righteous life that we can't live. And so he went and died in our place, again, the just for the unjust. But this is part of the picture. You see, we're looking at little pieces of the puzzle, but once we're done with it, it will be such a, a beautiful, magnificent picture in the end. And we're looking at little pieces of it along the way. So let's move into the next section here, and let's look at Jesus' sinless life. Again, these are things that were necessary to qualify Christ to go to the cross. He had to be sinless. He had to be sinless. Now, the record of Scripture, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, is that Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us that he committed no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says that in him, that, that in him there is no sin. Um, that's a pretty straightforward uh, understanding, isn't it? The scripture is pretty clear on that. But why? Why was the sinless humanity of Jesus necessary? You see, the biblical teaching is that all mankind is sinful and separated from God. Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous. No, not even one. And here Paul is talking about sinful humanity. That's who he's talking about. In verse 12, he says, there is no one who does good. There is not even one. And this is good by divine standards, not human standards. Down in verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So the scripture is very clear. And as I mentioned before, we, we are sinners on three fronts. First, we are sinners in Adam. Because when Adam fell, we fell with him. Because Adam uh, represents the human race, both federally and seminally. 
And so when Adam fell, the human race fell with him. And so all of his children that are born into this world, born into the family of Adam, are sinners by nature. You see, we come into the world with this proclivity to sin. Even little children, as beautiful as they are in the, in the, in the cradle, uh, they look like little bologna loaves in a bassinet to me, but, um, uh, but they can be cute, right? Little babies can be cute and cuddly. Uh, but nonetheless, given enough time, you realize that they have little sin natures. That is, that it is their nature to be rebellious. It is their nature to be defiant. It is their nature to be selfish and to be, to, to be manipulative. And this comes out very quickly at around the age of two or three. You know, they call it the terrible twos. That's when the volition really comes into full display. But it is our very nature to be that way, and we're all that way. I, I was that way. I was the strong-willed little booger of a child. That was me. Uh, I was that child. And, of course, some of us are more than others, but we're sinners in Adam. We're sinners by nature. That is, it is our natural proclivity or propensity to be sinful. And we are also sinners by choice. We are sinners by choice, and that is every time we yield to temptation. And I've spent a lot of time on this in the past. We've already spent several hours talking about what all that means, so I'm not going to revisit that. You can go back and listen to the previous lessons on that. But the reality is, is that because of our fallen sinful state, we are completely helpless to solve the problem of sin and to save ourselves. <clears throat> you see, here's, here's where the issue really comes in. And I've spent a lot of time unpacking this too, but we'll take a few moments to look at a few verses here. Romans chapter 5 uh, verses 6 through 10, Paul uses four words here to describe humanity. In verse 6, he says, For while we were still, and notice the first word, helpless. It's the first word uh, in our notes here. For while we were still helpless, Romans 5, 6 tells us. He says, At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. And then in verse 7, he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the third word. We are sinners. Verse 9 says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, the picture that Paul paints is that we are helpless. And to be helpless, well, it communicates by itself. It means there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We bring nothing to our salvation. Salvation is a gift. Now, if something's a gift, it means the other person paid for it in full. In full. And if you have to pay anything for it, it ceases to be a gift. It means you bought it. But salvation is a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is offered to us freely as a gift. But we are helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We are ungodly. We are sinners and we are enemies of God. And this is how God sees us. And by the way, uh, for us to uh, come to Christ, one must be properly oriented to God and understand ourselves from the divine perspective. You see, it's not what we think about ourselves that matters. It's not even what other people think about us that really matter. It's what does God think about us. Because the divine estimation of all of humanity is that everyone is helpless Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is an enemy. Everyone is ungodly. There are none righteous. No, not even one. 
And that is the state of men. And so we come merely with the empty hands of faith. We bring nothing to our salvation. Absolutely nothing. If we brought anything, it would be, it would be sin and death. That would be our contribution to, to the cross. Because that's what we brought. We brought sin, Christ bore it, and our death, and he died. And that's our contribution. But that's not a compliment to us. <laughs> okay? Uh, So because of our fallen sinful state, we are completely helpless to solve the problem of sin and to save ourselves. Furthermore, good works have no saving merit before God, none whatsoever. And remember Isaiah 64, 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And notice he says here, And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now he doesn't notice that. He doesn't say all of our sins. He says, all of our righteous deeds are like what? Like a filthy garment. Now, this is, this is a little shocking to some, but the word filthy uh, translates the Hebrew noun ida, which literally means a menstrual rag. Literally what it means. Um, and the translators were very nice. They, get, they, they, they translated in a very gentle way here. It's kind of like over in Philippians 3, where, where Paul says, you know, where he counts all of his uh, uh, righteousness under the law. He calls it but rubbish. Well, that's, that's a nice way, too, because that's the Greek word skubalon, which means excrement. And, uh, and, and the Bible sometimes uses very, very strong language. It's very harsh. But what it means here is that if we were to take all of our righteous deeds, all of our good works, put it into a, bring, put it into a bag, bring it to God, and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one menstrual rag, which is not acceptable. God says, just throw that over there in the fire. Just, just burn that. Because that's our best efforts. In the eyes of God, that's how that is seen. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now Paul's using an analogy here. And he's talking about, he's, he's comparing it to uh, everyday work life. Uh, And we might translate verse 4 this way. In fact, I kind of translate it this way. As now to the one who works a 40-hour work week, his wage or his paycheck is not credited as favor or a gift, kodos is the Greek word there, but as what is due. You see, every week I go to work and I put my employer in debt. Uh, And every two weeks my employer uh, puts money into my checking account and uh, they uh, relieve themselves of the debt. Uh, Becky understands it because we work at the same place. But when my employer puts that paycheck into my bank account, that's not a gift. They're not being kind to me. They're paying me what they owe me because I have worked for that. Okay. We understand that in the human world. That's fine. That's valid. But grace doesn't operate that way. And it is a flaw of humanity to think that we can take this worldly system and bring it to God and impose that upon our relationship with God and somehow think that we can bring works to God and that is sufficient to save us or to gain us entrance into heaven. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see, and this is why Paul says here, he says, and we all understand this because I understood this back in the day. Now, to the one who works a job, his paycheck is not regarded as a gift, but what is owed to him. Notice verse 5. 
but to the one who does not work. And you can underscore that and highlight that and put little asterisks around that because Paul's drawing a contrast here to the one who does not work, but does what? Believes in him who justifies who? Not the sweet and lovely and wonderful and charming because we were not and we are not, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith, that is the one who believes in Jesus as Savior, his faith is credited as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, the word credited is a boring word. Uh, The people in the finance department next to me, they would understand this word. It's the Greek verb logizomai, and it means to credit means to deposit, uh, to impute. It's an accounting term, is what it is, just a boring old accounting term. And so what is going on here is uh, when we simply trust in Christ as Savior, when we simply believe in Christ and believing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day, when we simply trust in Christ as our Savior, what happens is, is God takes his righteousness and he deposits it to us. He gives it to us as a gift. That's why in Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. It's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. But it's given to us as a gift. That's why Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. Faith doesn't save. Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that. He says, For by grace, caught us. You have been saved through faith. And notice, and that not of yourselves. Your salvation is not of anything you do. It is not uh, Christ plus Steve or Christ plus good work. It's not, it's not Christ plus, it's Christ. Man needs only Christ to be saved. And Acts 4.12 is very clear when it says that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He's not a way, he is the way. And so notice Paul goes on here, he says, and that not of yourselves, it, that is salvation, is the gift of God. And remember, if you have to work for it, it's not a gift. He calls it the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because if you bring anything to to the work of Christ upon the cross, then you have grounds for boasting. But not before God. (laughs) Now, good works should follow salvation, but they are never the condition of it. To be absolutely clear, good works should follow salvation. God calls us to a life of good works. He does. I mean, you can read Titus 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 6, 10 says, do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I mean, we're called to a life of good works, and good works should follow salvation, but again, uh, they are never, never the condition of it. Uh, and again, Titus 3, 5, he saved us, and it's always one way. It's always a top-down. He saved us. Notice, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So, Again, it's the issue that because of our fallen sinful state, we are completely helpless to solve the sin problem and save ourselves, and good works have no saving merit before God. By the way, the word sin, uh, from, the Greek noun, from the Greek word hamartia, means to miss the mark. In some cases, it's the idea of falling short. Now listen, it's just like if we were to all line up on the edge of the Grand Canyon, 
and give a good run and try to jump across the Grand Canyon, some of us would be able to jump a little farther than the other. But you know what? We're all going to fall short. And if we were to wait until the, till the sun sets and we were to get in the backyard and all pick up rocks and throw rocks and try to hit the moon, some of us can throw a little bit farther than the next person. But you know what? We're all going to fall short. None of us are going to hit the mark. And that's humanity trying to save himself. It can't be done. Impossible. Impossible. Can't be done. And yet, this is why the sinlessness of Christ is so necessary, because he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What we cannot do for ourselves. You see, being completely sinless, Jesus was qualified to go to the cross, as Peter tells us, as a lamb unblemished and spotless. A lamb, unblemished and spotless. And he also came to die a substitutionary death in our place. Again, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Charles Lee Feinberg says, Though tempted in all points as we are, he was nevertheless without sin. Indeed, we are told he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. In short, the combined testimony of Scripture reveals that in him there is no sin. I have a quote here from R.B. Thiem Jr. from his uh, new Bible Doctrine Dictionary, which is a good book to have if you don't have it. It just came out, I think, within the last year, so recommend it. I've actually uh, uh, have several citations in uh, this project that I'm working on. But a very scholarly man and a very good, uh, a good writer and good Bible teacher. He influenced me for about 10 years, and so I'm very thankful to him. Quoting here from uh, Colonel Thiem, he says, As true humanity living on earth... Christ was free from all three categories of human sinfulness, the sin nature, Adam's original sin, and personal sins. The first two categories were eliminated from our Lord's life through the virgin birth, but personal sin remained an issue throughout the incarnation. Scripture confirms that our Lord can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The temptation to personal sin did not come from within because the humanity of Christ had no inherent sin nature. He did, however, receive temptation from outside his person, even being tempted by Satan himself. By constantly relying on the provisions of the spiritual life, the same provisions available to all of us, Jesus Christ was able to resist every temptation and remain perfect, end quote. Now, later on, we're going to spend some time talking about the uh, impeccability of Christ, and we're going to look at the phrases, posi non pocari, non posi pocari, the Latin phrases, able not to sin, not able to sin, and so on, and we'll, we'll look at some of that language in the future. I've reserved that for a future lesson. But nonetheless, Christ is presented as uh, one who was, not, uh, who was without Adam's original sin, because remember, we are sinners on three fronts. We are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. Because Jesus Christ came into the world and was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, Jesus did not have a human biological father. Joseph was not his biological father. Uh, but he was, Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, the, Greek, the term for that is called parthenogenesis. And remember that Mary was Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. She's not Theotokos. She's not the mother of God. That's, God doesn't have a mother. 
but nonetheless, because Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus was conceived minus Adam's original sin, it was not imputed, and he was minus his sin nature. So Jesus did not come into the world with a sin nature. Uh, now, don't you know that this created some problems in his home, no doubt, because all of his brothers and sisters were little sinners. They had little sin natures, and, and, and Mary uh, probably looked at them and said, why can't you be like Jesus, right? Well, <laughs> uh, impossible for them, <laughs> not possible. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when he came into the world, he did not have Adam's original sin. He did not have a sin nature. And then the issue then becomes, can he go his whole life and commit no sin? And that's what uh, Pastor Theme is talking about, because he did that. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. He went his entire life, and he committed no sin. And the Scripture is very clear on that. And again, this is theologically significant, because it qualified him to go to the cross and die as our substitute, the just... For me, the unjust. Uh, because again, when he went to the cross, he did not go to the cross and die for his sins. He had none. He was innocent. And so when he went to the cross and willingly died upon the cross, uh, all of my sins were placed upon him, and he, and he took those sins upon himself. And we have to understand that. And so he, he, he bore all of our sins. Past, present, and future, even because, I mean, all of my sins were future from the time of the cross, right? And all of my sins, even my future sins, were placed upon him upon the cross. He, he, was, he bore the punishment for all of my sins, not some, all of them. And so the benefits of the cross are applied to me at the moment that I trust in him as my Savior. The one condition of salvation is faith. We must simply come with the empty hands of faith and trust in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he gives the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus died for you? I do. He died for me. He bore the punishment for my sins and he was placed in a grave and on the third day he came back to life never to die again, Romans tells us. Never to die again. And... When I simply come and I trust in him, in Christ and Christ alone, at that moment, I receive forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. I receive the gift of eternal life, John 10.28. I receive the gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17, and many, many other blessings. I become, I am transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, Colossians 1.13. I become a child of the living God. I become a brother to the king of kings and lord of lords. I am transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. I am now a brother to the king of kings and lord of lords. You are a sister to the king of kings and lord of lords. However you come into the relationship with Christ, at that moment you are transferred out of Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You are now part of the royal family. Now we have to enter into phase two of the Christian life, and that is understanding our position in Christ, understanding that we are adopted into this royal family, and we must now learn to live according to the royal family honor code. We must now learn to live according to the high noble calling that God calls us to. So we have to move out of that peasant mindset and begin to think of who we are in Christ, how God sees us, because it is the divine estimation of who you are that literally defines reality. Again, it's not what you think of yourself. It's not what other people think of you. Even when you sin, you are still part of the royal family of God. If, 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 if the prince of England goes out on the town and gets drunk and makes a wreck of his life and does some stupid stuff, uh, when he gets up in the morning, guess what? He's still a prince. 
His identity doesn't change. Well, that's true for the Christian as well. Now, you might be, you're a saint, and a saint is just a synonym for a, for a Christian. That's all it is. It's just a name for a believer. And you might be a sinning saint, but you're still a saint. That's still who you are. Your identity doesn't change. And so this becomes part of our new identity in Christ. See, it's a wonderful package. By the way, salvation is never what we do for God. Let's be clear here. Salvation is never what we do for God. Salvation is what God has done for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is never what we do for God. It's what he's done for us. Now, sinners need salvation but cannot save themselves. See, there's the problem. We need salvation, but we can't save ourselves, and we can't, and, and, and nor can sinners save other sinners. All are trapped in sin and utterly helpless to change their condition. But God the Son did, did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, that's the issue. God the Son did what we cannot do for ourselves. He obeyed the Father, stepped into time and space, taking true and sinless humanity to himself and living a perfect life before the Father. Then at a point in time, he surrendered himself to the cross and died a penal substitutionary death on behalf of all humanity, bearing the wrath of God in our place. Then he was placed in a grave and rose again to life on the third day, never to die again. And the reality here is that the benefits of the cross are applied to those who come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, believing he died for them, was buried and raised again on the third day. You see, the benefits of the cross are there to all of humanity. Christ died for everyone, but the benefits of the cross are only applied or benefit those who believe. One must come to faith in Christ. That's the only way to receive the benefits of the cross. And we come with the empty hands of faith, believing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day. And that when we place our faith in him as Savior, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And the verb there, give, is the Greek word didomi, and it's a present tense truth, which means it's a right now truth. When you believe in Christ, eternal life is what you have. It's not what you can have, it's what you have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth. This is given freely by grace. Quoting here again by theme, and we have about another seven minutes, so bear with me, y'all. This is given freely by grace, here citing again from R.B. Theme. He says, every human being needs to be saved. See, that's the reality of it. That's the reality. Every human needs to be saved, and quoting here again, because everyone enters this world in a state of spiritual death, total depravity, and total separation from God. Because man is born hopelessly lost from God and helpless to do anything about it, God, in his grace, designed a perfect plan to reconcile man to himself. God the Son took the burden of responsibility. He became true humanity and remained sinless so that he could be judged for the sins of the world. While Jesus Christ hung on the cross, God the Father poured the full wrath of his justice upon the Son he loved so perfectly. Christ bore our sins in his body and took the punishment in our place. God's righteous standard approved of Jesus' sacrifice as payment for all of our sins, end quote. And again, absolutely correct there. 
Absolutely correct. And of course, he cites there 2 Corinthians 5.21. Notice what it says here, that he made him, that is God made Jesus, who knew no sin. He, he made Jesus who knew no sin to be what? Sin on whose behalf? Our behalf. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God, not in ourselves, but that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, this is the trade-off. This is what Peter talks about, the just for the unjust. And so as Christ was upon the cross, here's the sinless son of God, perfect humanity, righteous in everything that he said and did. He goes to the cross, willingly lays down his life. And remember, he could have stopped it anywhere along the way. He could have just snapped his fingers. It's all over. But he willingly goes through the trials, he goes through the beatings, he goes through the mockings, he goes through the scourging, they twist the crown of thorns upon his head, they mock him, and then he's made to carry his instrument of death through the city, mocked the whole time, gets to the hill, Golgotha, the hill of the skull, and there he's crucified between two thieves, common criminals, and he's placed upon the cross. And again, he could have stopped it anywhere along the way, but he didn't, he allowed it to happen. And again, when he hung between heaven and earth, again, at that time from noon to three, when the sky grew dark and God takes all of our sin and puts it upon Christ and he willingly bore our sin, willingly paid the price for that. You see, that's God making him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we, what? Might. Not that we will, but that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, that's, that's the flip side of the coin. Because at the moment of faith in Christ, at the moment that we trust in Christ as our Savior, at that moment, God gives us the gift of righteousness. And that's what Paul calls it over in Romans 5.17. Notice that here. He calls it the gift of righteousness. And that is the very righteousness. Just as our sin was placed upon Christ... And judged in our place, so the righteousness of Christ is now imputed to us as a gift. In other words, you possess the very righteousness of God. And by the way, you, can, you cannot improve upon the righteousness of God. You can't. And when you receive the righteousness of God, it's a perfect righteousness. It cannot be added to. It cannot be improved upon. It cannot be taken away from. It is perfect. And when God looks down from heaven and looks upon you who have trusted in Christ as Savior, he sees his righteousness in you. He sees his righteousness in you. And God approves of his righteousness, by the way. He doesn't approve of your righteousness. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. That's what your righteousness is. But that's the trade-off. He says, well, we're not going to operate on your righteousness. We're going to operate on my righteousness. And so he takes his righteousness and he deposits it to you. Logizomai, he gives it to you as a gift. That's why, again, in Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness, you see. Again, that we might become, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that's the trade-off. And so again, when we come with the empty hands of faith, the very righteousness of God is then given to us. And that is part of the package that we get uh, at the moment of salvation. There's many other things, and I've covered this in the past. We've spent hours and hours and hours on this, so I'm just referencing this because we've already spent many, many hours on a lot of this material, so you know what I'm talking about. But just as a refresher, and that's why we're moving at kind of a slow pace, 
I mean, last week we spent, or not last week, but last time we met, we spent the whole hour just talking about just the suffering of Christ. And we just spent that whole time talking about what is he, how did he suffer? Well, guess what? We're going to hit it again here in a few months. We're, in fact, we're going to spend probably about six weeks looking at the suffering of Christ. Uh, we're going we're gonna to unpack the cross, and it's going to get a little heavy. So just heads up. But we're going to see it eyes wide open. We're going to see it just as they would have seen it in the first century. We're going to go back and we're going to look at the cross and we're going to see what all that involved. Uh, and it's not a pretty picture, but that's the cross. And, you know, it's funny to me, and I've said this before, people wear uh, crosses, you know, as jewelry pieces. In the first century church, they would no more have worn a cross around their neck than we would wear an electric chair around our neck. It was a symbol of death and a symbol of the most horrific kind of death. And to say that the Savior of the world was put to death in such a way, well, the world looks at that as foolishness. But that, therein lies the wisdom of God, that he has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And that's just the brilliance of God, and we'll talk about that too, why, why the cross was necessary, why the cross was necessary. All right, so tonight we looked at the humility of Jesus, and we also looked at um, the sinlessness of Jesus. And by the way, we're, uh, even though it seems like we're moving at a snail's pace, trust me, we could spend months here. I've, I've read through countless uh, th theology works and many other uh, works, but um, uh, I'm giving you sort of the high points. <laughs> uh, so anyway, hopefully this has been helpful. So let me go ahead and put a stop on, uh, on our... Um, live stream here. All right, everybody, well, let's close it out with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll call it a night, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time of fellowship, for the present freedoms that we enjoy to be able to gather together in peace and to enjoy the blessings that you bestowed upon us. For this time of fellowship together in prayer and study of your word, Father, we just pray as we close out this evening that the things that we've studied together uh, we'll be seated in our thoughts, in the stream of our consciousness as we go about our days. And Father, we just are so thankful for all that you blessed us with. And Father, we just pray that as we close out this evening that, that, uh, that you will be honored and that we will be edified. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.